0: Hey, we want to just, some of you have been asking about where we are in our finances and uh, with in regard to Vision Next, and I just want to give you kind of a spring financial update. Um, just so you know, we're not in the tall grass. We're we're doing okay. But I um, want to show you, first of all, uh, a graph about our um, quarterly income versus expenses. You can see <clears throat> the four quarters. Our um, fiscal year is July one to June thirty, and so you notice that uh, during quarter four of last year, in quarter one of uh, this fiscal year, we were we were down a little bit, and we shared that with you as a congregation, and you responded uh, very generously. And we so appreciate that. And so you can see second quarter, October to December, we, we, uh, we, we exceeded our expenses and uh, now coming down into the third quarter, we've just completed the third quarter. We're, we're still, um, our, our income is still exceeding our expenses, but trending downward a little bit. We just want to encourage you with that and, and, uh, encourage you to to be giving faithfully uh, to life point and then the next graph is our total general fund giving um, year to date and as you can see again our receipts are three fifty four thousand seven hundred and forty two our budgeted general fund to date is three forty seven so we're about seven thousand um, dollars above our budgeted. And so that's that's great. And then want to let you know where we are with regard to vision next. If you can go to that next slide and then the next one after that. Our three-year pledge total, and it's taken us a little bit of time to get this sorted out, which is why we haven't reported this sooner, but our three-year pledge total was $456,725. So well done, point. It's really yeah. Go ahead. That's very exciting. And then the next one, first fruits gifts that were given uh, as of March thirty first uh, are sixty four thousand four hundred and seventy seven. And so if you go to the next one, our total gifts received as of April fifteenth are eighty seven thousand four hundred and sixty seven dollars that we already have in hand, and that money has gone into yes. Good job. Keep applauding. <laughs> Thank you, God. And thank you, LifePoint. Those uh, funds, the cash that we have on hand, are being moved into interest-bearing accounts with an entity called the Church Growth Fund that's part of our denominational uh, network. And they're a subsidiary of our network. And uh, they offer interest rates that are way above what we can get in our banks right now. And so Uh, We're doing the right thing with that money, and I hope that you're excited about that. Would you bow in prayer with me? Father God, as we come now to your word, would you, Lord, do that thing that only you can do? Would you take this one message and apply it to each of our hearts according to our unique needs? Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, amen. We're starting a new series today. Um, You say you want a revolution. And uh, we're going to be uh, digging kind of a deep dive into the Lord's prayer. And uh, I, I so appreciate having the opportunity the last couple of weeks to be out of the pulpit, and appreciate Pastor Steve and Matt Sidley for their teaching over these weeks. Didn't they do a great job? Thought they did an awesome job. So yeah. But that what that did for me was it gave me a little rest after vision. Next, I was kind of gasping for air, and uh, gave also gave me the opportunity to just spend some time in the Word, reading, reflecting, praying preparing for this series and I'm so excited about this series because you know sometimes we we see the Lord's Prayer as kind of an artifact right I mean it's it's kind of this interesting thing that uh, the Lord gave to his disciples and but it doesn't affect us much and I want you to know that that uh, I, I have seen the Lord's Prayer in a new light in in big ways and I hope that uh, together uh, we will grow significantly as we think through what it is that Jesus was actually teaching his disciples. So our title is based on, you know, that song. You say you want a revolution. Uh, Paul McCartney, John Lennon, 1960, probably eight, I think, and um, they wrote, you, "You say you want a revolution." Well, you know, we all want to change the world. We do. As we look around the world, there, there are things that we want to change, and uh, we long for revolution. Something within us, as we look around the, the, the landscape of our lives, as I look around the landscape of our community, our nation, our world, uh, something within us cries out that the world as we find it is horribly broken and desperately in need of repair. That theme is woven throughout the scriptures. For example, Psalm 94, 1 through 4, O Lord, the God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, let your glorious justice shine forth. Arise, O judge of the earth. Give the proud what they deserve. How long, O Lord? How long will the wicked be allowed to gloat? How long will they speak with arrogance? Arrogance. How long will these evil people boast? And sometimes we've felt that way, haven't we? Have we watched the evening news and we say, what is wrong with our world? Why are things so sideways? Why are people so confused? Why do the, why do the wicked prevail? Why are the righteous always dumped on Amos 5, verse 24, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You look around our world today, we watch the evening news, we read our newspapers, we read our news magazines, and, and we see people all over, our, all over our country and literally all over the world agitating for change. And some historians have identified this modern epic as the Age of Revolution, We might think of the revolutions most of us have studied in school, for example, the American Revolution, or the French Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution under Vladimir Lenin in Russia, or the the Maoist Revolution in China. A quick scan of the past 300 years reveals that there have been literally hundreds if not thousands of uprisings and rebellions and revolutions all over the world on every continent the numbers are staggering so history reveals that pretty clearly that we're living in an age of revolution but i think we have to ask a second question which which is whether it wouldn't be better and more acu- accurately described as the age of failed revolution failed revolution Because looking across the the landscape of history, we might observe that very few revolutions produce what they promise. In fact, it can be demonstrated that many, if not most revolutions, haven't changed things much at all or, or have actually led to a worse set of conditions than the ones they replaced. And yet we still hope beyond hope for radical change, for things in our world to be set right. And whatever any of us may think of the various social and political movements of our time, whether on the left or on the right, each one at its base represents some human desire, some human longing for a better society, a more just government, more equitable conditions, at least for the revolutionaries themselves, at least from their perspective. But regardless of of how clear or unclear our vision may be, most of us rightly long to see things like righteousness and truth and justice prevail, uh, though we don't know how to achieve it. And we're actually desperate, I think, for what no earthly revolution can ever produce. Our needs are deeper by far than can be met by any human leader or any social or political or economic system. What we long for is, in fact, a kingdom and a king whose rule is perfect. There is, I believe, in our very nature, a a yearning to get back to the Garden of Eden, to an intimate relationship with our Creator, to the way things were before sin alienated us from ourselves, from each other, and from God. We don't remember the garden. None of us have ever been there. None of us have ever experienced it, but we hear its faint echoes. And whether we realize it or not, and even though most of us reject the idea entirely, our deepest needs, our deepest longings, if we would see them rightly, are for the rule of God in our world and in our individual lives and for Jesus Christ to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. And over the next six weeks, we're gonna, as I mentioned, take a deep dive into this prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer because the Lord's Prayer is a revolutionary prayer. It's a prayer that turns the world upside down. And if you say you want a revolution, If you say you want a revolution, there can be no clearer call to revolution than when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Most people in the Western world are are familiar with the Lord's Prayer, but our familiarity may be the very thing that prevents us from seeing just how radical, just how subversive it really is. And as we're going to see, it's for those who hold firmly That Jesus Christ has put in place a kingdom. That he has risen from the dead. That he now reigns at the right hand of God the Father. That he's coming again in power and glory to judge the living and the dead. It's for revolutionaries, men and women, who want to see the kingdom of this world give way to the kingdom of God. You and I were created for communion with our Creator. In the Garden of Eden, the first man and woman enjoyed a daily, face-to-face, conversational relationship with God, which is the very essence of prayer, an ongoing relationship, an ongoing conversation with Him. I've always been fascinated by the statement in Genesis chapter 3 that, that Adam and Eve heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That they enjoyed that face-to-face relationship with him. That, that for God to be walking in the garden in which they also walked was the most natural thing. But when the man and woman sinned, their sin spelled the undoing of that relationship. And so instead of communing with God, instead of conversing with him, instead of enjoying that deep, intimate, personal, face-to-face relationship with him, what were they now doing? They were now hiding from him, avoiding him. And sin's worst effect is that it separates us from the one who created us. Uh, who, who knows us best and who loves us most and ultimately because of their sin they were driven from the garden but not only from the garden they were driven from God's very presence And as we know, sin proved to be a family disease, and the sin of Adam spread to the entire human race. But before that happened, God promised that he would one day send a redeemer who would set things right, who would crush the serpent's head, and that redeemer came in the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, and then he gave that life as the sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God toward all of us, all of us, and paid the debt of our sin. He stood in for us. He he bore our sin on the cross. He was our substitute. He died in our place, and he was buried, and he rose again from the dead, and he ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and one day he is coming, again amen and because God accepted Jesus' sacrifice as the full and final payment of our sin debt our sins can be forgiven when we simply trust by faith in what Jesus accomplished for us here's what happens God forgives our sin all of it past, present and future scandalous really declares that we are now in a right relationship as if we had never sinned and he adopts us into his family as his own children. Jesus came for one purpose and that was to restore us to that relationship with God that was disconnected by sin and when we receive the adoption as God's children, Jesus becomes our brother. So it's strange to say, but prayer is at one and the same time, simultaneously the highest but also the most neglected privilege of God's children. We evangelicals frequently talk about the Christian life as being all about a relationship with God, and it's true, and that's what the the Christian life can be and is supposed to be. But how can we claim, how can we claim to have a relationship with someone with whom we rarely have a conversation. You know, a great deal of research is indicating that many Christians have actually given up on prayer. And and we need to ask why that is. I'm sure that there are many answers to that question. Let me suggest a few. First of all, we may simply be confused about God whether we pray or how we pray and what we pray for may reveal more about how we view God than any other single indicator. There's an ancient saying from the early church, as we pray, so we believe. That is, our prayer reveals our theological convictions, our understanding of who God is and what he's all about and the relationship that we have with him. J.I. Packer in his book Praying the Lord's Prayer said this, people feel a problem about prayer because of the muddle they are in about God. If you're uncertain whether God exists or whether he's personal or good or in control of things or concerned about ordinary folks like you and me, you are bound to conclude that prayer is pretty pointless, not to say trivial, and then you won't do it. But if you believe as Christians do, then then you will have no such doubts and you will recognize that for us to speak to the Father and the Son in prayer is as natural as it was for Jesus to talk to his Father in heaven or for the disciples to talk to their Master during the days of his earthly ministry. So first of all, we may be confused about God. Secondly, we may be simply resistant to religion. You hear people say that a lot these days. I'm spiritual but not religious. I'm not into organized religion. It's almost a mantra of our times. You may have been brought up on impersonal, repetitious recitations of formal prayers even the Lord's Prayer. And then you may have been progressively turned off to prayer itself. For, for example, I've, I've never been a Catholic, <laughs> but I've often wondered why it is, maybe it's from the movies I watch, that the multiple recitations of the Lord's Prayer, or the Our Father, as it's often called, will be assigned to a person by a priest as an act of penance following confession. Because at that point, it almost feels like a punishment, like, like writing, I will not chew gum in class 100 times, you know, on the board. Maybe I've got that wrong, and maybe you can enlighten me. But what I do know is that there are a lot of ways that, that religion itself can get in the way of cultivating a real relationship with God. Third, we may be distracted. What do you think? you think that's possible these days? Be a little distracted. Prayers about conversation with God and and meaningful conversation requires somewhat undivided attention. The distractions of our busy lives, of hobbies, of leisure time activities, of today's technology, and more can get in the way of a, a meaningful prayer life. We may lack a sense of desperation. We 21st century American Christians have it pretty easy compared with Christians in other ages of history or compared with Christians in other countries today. For the most part, we're pretty affluent. Our fundamental needs are well supplied. You might remember a statistic that we shared some time back that that even if you're on food stamps in in the United States, if you're on welfare, you're still in the top 3% of wage earners in the world. So far in the United States, if we experience persecution, it's most often mild and relatively inconsequential, and as a result, we rarely experience the desperation that that other Christians have experienced that drives us to prayer. Another possibility is we may have never been taught how to pray. The most common way to learn to pray is not by direct instruction. That would almost seem kind of boring to me, but but by listening to others pray and following their example as we begin to learn to pray ourselves. You may not have had that experience. You may may not have had prayer modeled for you by your parents, by your friends, by your relatives, by others. You, You may not have been a part of a church where prayer was practiced, except maybe from the pulpit. And what I want to encourage you with during These weeks, as we dive into the Lord's Prayer, is that you can learn to pray. And I'm not just talking about mimicking. I'm talking about learning to have a real conversational relationship with God. In Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, the disciples ask Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And when you think about it, it's somewhat surprising what they didn't ask him to teach them. For example, uh, they might have asked Jesus, teach us how to turn water into wine. That'd be kind of awesome. Save a lot of money. Enhance your social life. Or Lord, teach us how to raise people from the dead. Save a lot of money on funerals. Some of the disciples were fishermen. As fishermen, they might have asked, Lord, teach us how to calm a storm or, or show us how you filled our Nets with fish that day. How'd you do that? Could you teach us how to do that? Or even teach us how to walk on water? Because if we could just walk to where we need to fish, that would save a lot of money on boats. And instead, I think it's fascinating that they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Luke 11, 1. They had heard John the Baptist teaching his disciples to pray. Some of them may have been followers of John themselves, and Jesus had not yet taught them. But they had heard Jesus pray in their presence, and he prayed in a manner that exceeded the prayer of John. They had seen Jesus go away by himself Frequently for extended periods of intensive prayer, communing with the Father. They they couldn't miss his commitment to prayer or, or they could not have failed to connect the dots between his prayer and his spiritual power. And what Jesus gave his disciples is a pattern for prayer. You can stay seated, but will you read this aloud with me? Matthew 6, 9 through 13. God the Son is teaching us to communicate with God the Father. If anybody knew what it meant to talk with God, it was God. Jesus. And he didn't just give them a prayer. He didn't intend that every time we pray, we should recite the pattern for prayer what I think he did intend is that we would pray each of these statements or each of these elements of this prayer in a similar sequence. Because as we'll see as we move through these weeks together and even this morning, the sequence matters. The prayer builds from start to finish. So let's just this morning because we're just beginning let's let's just look at an overview of this he gives them first of all an address our father in heaven this is where we're going to be next week and we're going to go deep into this next week but Jesus directs us to approach God on the basis that we are his children that we're members of his family that he is our father he he welcomes us with the love the perfect love of a perfect father and then he wants us to link the thought of his fatherhood with the thought that he is our father in heaven that is that he is the eternal God who is sovereign and self-existent he is there and he is not silent and he is for us but he is also firmly in charge of everything Fatherly love combined with transcendent majesty. And the rest of the prayer assumes these two attributes of God, his fatherhood and his sovereignty. God is asking, in essence, what do you take me for? And what am I to you? That's the question that this prayer begins with. It challenges us in our simple understanding and acknowledgement of who God really is, who it is that we're addressing. And that's followed then by three, I want to say, God centered petitions or requests. And as I've been reflecting on these first three requests, uh, I've understood it this way, that God is asking, given that I am your Father, given that I am your Father in heaven, what is it then that you really want most from me? And the first three answers are, Father, that your name be hallowed, that your kingdom come, and that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's look at those. First of all, hallowed be your name. This is the, really the, the largest and the most foundational request of the entire prayer. Packer wrote, understand this request and make it your own and you have unlocked the secret of both prayer and life. The way that we regard the name of God reveals the posture of our hearts toward him. And this is a request that the holiness, the praise, the honor, the glory of God should be the underlying issue of everything in our lives. Everything in all the universe. Second petition, second request is this. Your kingdom come. And this second petition builds on the first. The kingdom of God is here now. God's kingdom is essentially his reign over his people for their good and for his glory. God rules, and he rules redemptively, benevolently, kindly, generously, mercifully in the hearts and lives of those throughout the world who trust in Christ as Savior and obey him as Lord. The kingdom has come in the person of Jesus. But one day, the kingdom of God will arrive in the fullness of its glory. And we look forward to that day. The kingdom of God on earth will never, ever, ever be established through social action or political movements. One day, Jesus will come again to rule and to reign over on earth so as we pray for the kingdom of god we regularly renew our hope we regularly renew our hearts and purify them before him john said that the the hope of the coming of christ is the purifying hope of the church third Jesus taught them to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is saying that the presence of the kingdom of God, his rule, is revealed when you and I begin to obey and worship God from the heart in the same way that the residents of heaven do. It's good for us to to read and reflect on heaven and what's going on there, the things that are happening behind the veil. I don't know if heaven is way up there somewhere or just right here beside me. I don't know where it is, but I can't see it now. But I can understand, I can understand from God's word what happens there. And it's all about the praise and the glory and the worship of God. The presence of the kingdom is shown when it's no longer my will, that's preeminent in my decision-making, but his How do we know what the will of God is? It's revealed in the Bible through the apostles and the prophets. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And then that's followed by three man-centered petitions, or if we want to say it more crassly, self-centered petitions. As I thought about this, it seems that God is asking, so if I'm your father in heaven... What is it that you want most? We've already talked about that. But then the next question is, so what are you asking for right now as a means to the end of my name being hallowed and my kingdom coming and my will being done? Again, the sequence matters. The first thing that Jesus taught them to ask for was give us this day our daily bread. You know, we talk a lot in our society kind of our cultural mythology about the self-made man (laughs) or the self-made woman and there is no such thing this request reminds us of our dependence on god for even the most fundamental needs of our lives god is exalted he is self-existent he is self-sufficient we on the other hand are incapable of acquiring even our, even our most basic needs without his help. It all comes from him. God is glorified when we humble ourselves and acknowledge our need. You hear a story about a, an office flooding and we realize that that could happen to us or worse. It could all be gone tomorrow. Everything we've worked for, everything we've built up in life could be gone in a flash sudden health failure that overwhelms our economy and then jesus said for to pray this way forgive us our debts this second petition this second request forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and this is i think a gospel prayer We can only say these words, we can only ask these things of God when we stand on the finished atoning work of Christ. The request demonstrates that that the bedrock, the foundation of the Lord's Prayer is nothing less than the gospel itself. We can only pray this prayer when we recognize that we are deeply sinful and that only the grace of God in Christ can, redeem, can remedy our situation. And as the grace of God does its work in our lives, the fruit that, part of the fruit will be that we extend grace to others. We become forgiving people. Third, and finally, he Taught them to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I, I love the, the old expression, lead me not into temptation. I can find it very well by myself. But this petition, this request has two parts: a lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil, or, or actually more literally here, the evil one. And both halves express a single thought: life is a spiritual minefield. And in that environment, we dare not trust ourselves. Father, don't allow us to be attempted beyond our ability to resist. Father, protect us from ourselves, our own waywardness. Father, protect us from the evil one. It's a prayer of humility. It's also a prayer of realism, isn't it? You may be wondering why um, the doxology doesn't appear there at the end of this prayer in Matthew. Neither does it in Luke, in fact. For thine is the kingdom, as we have all memorized it. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Uh, The best manuscripts actually don't include that little doxology. And yet it fits, doesn't it? Because it's all about the kingdom of God, the power of God, the glory of God and in it we might hear God asking how can you be so bold and confident in asking for all of these things and the answer is of course because we know you can do it because of who you are and when you do that for us and when you do it for you it will bring you glory So, a simple message this morning, but let me ask you this question as we close. You want a revolution? You want a revolution in your world? Do you think maybe we need a revolution in our local and national politics? Do you think we we need a revolution in the moral and social fabric of our communities? Some of you who are younger may need a revolution in your dating, may need a whole new way of thinking about that, a whole new way of approaching that. Those of you who are single and would like to be married may need a whole new revolution in the way you think about your whole purpose in life and the direction that God would have you go. You may long for a a revolution in your marriage this morning, a revolution in your relationships with your children, for example, and your grandchildren. You may be longing for some kind of radical change just in your personal life. And you look at your life and you say, is this all there is? Is this really it? And underlying that will be a revolution in your walk with God. You you may need a revolution in your finances this morning. Some of you have shared with me that you're so up to your eyeballs and over your eyeballs and above your hairline in debt that to think about being a generous steward of your finances is just simply out of the question because you're a you're a borrower who is a slave to a lender. You may need a revolution in relationship to some besetting sin. On the way over here this morning, I was listening to an old preacher I love to listen to on Sunday mornings on the radio. And he talked about the fact that for so many of us in our lives, we're still dealing with the same temptations and the same pattern of sin that we were dealing with years ago. And we say, how come that hasn't changed? You may need a revolution in your guilt over your past and deep forgiveness and deep healing. You may need a revolution just simply in your strength for today and your hope for the future. And I want you to know that, that all of that begins with your prayer life. It begins with a Father who is in heaven who loves you and is in charge and who is all about glorifying himself and glorifying himself in you and through you and for you. So, As we close this morning, I'm going to invite the band to come, but I'm going to pray. And this morning, if you would like simply to have someone pray for you, I just invite you to come up. I'm just going to come stand over here and if you'd like someone to simply pray for you, not going to do anything weird. <laughs> I'm just going to pray for you, okay? Nothing, nothing untoward will happen. We just want to pray for you, and and so if that's your desire this morning, uh, you come uh, during this next song. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the fact that you are our heavenly Father. Lord, for some of us, that word father is a a difficult word because the one that we had here on earth failed us. And yet, Lord, you are a father unlike any of us fathers. Far and above, you are the, the prototype for all fatherhood. And you're perfect in your love, perfect in your faithfulness, perfect in your generosity, perfect in your wisdom. And Lord, you are in heaven, and so not only are you loving, but you're in charge, and so we can trust you with our lives. And this morning, I I pray as we move into this uh, series... And as we go deep into this prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Lord, that we would find you increasingly to be all that we need. Thank you that we can bring all of our requests to you, that none of them is too small, too trivial, too ridiculous. But as a a loving Father who knows us, knows what we're made of you delight to hear our requests thank you that in jesus christ we've received the adoption as your children you've made us part of your family we pray these things in the name of jesus amen